All I can tell you is that Israel's position in the Arab world has changed because they no longer see Israel as their enemy, but as their ally in their uh, indispensable battle against the forces of militant Islam, either those led by Iran, the Shiites, or those led by uh, Daesh, by ISIS, the militant Sunnis. We hear that you have dramatically improved your relationship with Egypt. That's correct. Is that correct? Yes. Jordan? Yes. Saudi Arabia? No comment. I have to ask you, because it's the most fascinating of all. Israel and Saudi Arabia. Are you actually developing an anti-Iran alliance in the Middle East? It doesn't have to be developed. It's there anyway. Shalom and welcome to Israel Policy Forum's Matav podcast, the podcast that brings you all the latest updates and analysis on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I'm Noah Schusterman, the Communications and Research Fellow. And I'm Eli Koaz, Communications Director. For the past few years, there have been incessant talks um, about the... For the past few years, there have been continuous talks about an Israeli-Saudi cooperation, mostly revolving around the shared necessity to combat Iran's power and influence in the region. These rumors have been in the background without any official confirmation for years, but recently, the IDF's chief of staff, Gadi Eisenkot, told a prominent Saudi newspaper that Israel is ready to share intel on Iran, implying that a rapprochement process might be taking place. Joining us today by phone is Hussein Ibish. Hussein's a senior resident scholar at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington. He was previously a senior fellow at the American Task Force on Palestine, and he published a book on the desirability and viability of the two-state solution from the perspective of the Palestinian national interest. Hi, Hussein. Great to have Hi. you. Hi, um, how are you? Thank you very much. Good. Um, so I wanted to start by asking you about Israeli-Saudi rapprochement. Do you think that's uh, merely Israeli wistful thinking, or is Saudi really doing some sort of uh, strategic regrouping um, in regards to everything that's going on in the region and with Iran? Um, okay. And I'm also wondering how does how will the uh, recent recognition of Jerusalem by Trump come into play with this situation? Uh, a very, very big question. So, um, yeah, Saudi-Israeli rapprochement, uh, well, that that would be a hyperbolic word at this point. And, and I think, well, first of all, let's, let's just stipulate that, um, well, Israel has always wanted to um, have good relations with the broader Arab world, uh, without, particularly without doing anything, uh, without making any uh, com- compromises to that end on Palestinian issues. That's, that's sort of the long-term goal, because uh, they don't want to compromise if they don't have to with Palestinians, and yet, they, of course, they live in the region, so they would like to have regional acceptance and legitimacy, which they've been denied um, since uh, the founding of the state. Now, um, the uh, Gulf states, especially Saudi Arabia, but also the, the UAE, and when they finally patch things up, Qatar and others, Kuwait probably, uh, do, do have an interest in, uh, you know, strategic interest in a potential new opening and dialogue and maybe even a strategic relationship with Israel based on shared threat perceptions regarding Iran. However, um, they're, uh, I think, um, not at all willing to do that, particularly at a higher stage and in public, without getting some progress on Palestinian issues. Uh, and let's just first of all look at the at the two narratives because they're in such stark contrast, right? The Israeli narrative coming out of Prime Minister Netanyahu and many others is that uh, this is over. There's been a revolution in Arab attitudes towards Israel. There's now a strategic partnership. It's a fait accompli, et cetera. And this, this is clearly hyperbole at least, right, if not worse. Um, 
And why would uh, Israeli leaders be talking like this if it's if it's a gross exaggeration? And the answer I, I think is pretty obvious, which is to get everybody on both sides used to the idea, and to present the public and the political um, sort of sphere with a uh, with a, a fait accompli that becomes, or or the sense of a self fulfilling prophecy that becomes a fait accompli, uh, and to you know, so you just keep saying something exists, and then hopefully it will build it, and they'll come. That kind of thing. All right. Uh, so that's on the one hand. On the other hand, the the Saudi narrative is uh, that uh, their uh, approach to Israel is the same as it has been since 2002, the Arab Peace Initiative, and that's it, and there's no change. Now, I, I would argue that in all likelihood, the truth lies somewhere in the middle, uh, where I do think that uh, Saudis and other Arabs have, have uh, made a, a certain shift, potentially, and that it's, it haven't made it, but they've been considering the willing and, and signaling a willingness to make a shift, not on the substance of the Arab Peace Initiative, but on the way that it it operates. In the past, uh, the Arab Peace Initiative was always presented as uh, as an added inducement to Israel of full normalization with the Arab and Muslim worlds at the end of the peace process with Palestinians. And I think uh, some Arab countries have been moving to a point where they would uh, be willing to consider uh, limited concurrent measures towards implementing that, uh, where Israel does some things like limiting settlements or easing pressure on Gaza and things like that uh, for the Palestinians, and, and in a reciprocal way, uh, gain things like uh, civil aviation, landing rights, or limited diplomatic contacts or, uh, contacts or some commercial uh, links or something like that. Um, with the Arab countries involved, and and so that you have you know this virtuous circle developed with confidence building on it, and that's not something that's ever been undertaken, uh, but I think it's something that is not off the table by any means. I think it's very much on the table. Uh, so the, the, you know, so the, the the question then is, what has been done? And the answer is, well, in public and openly, and therefore in a big way, nothing. Uh, in private. Who knows? There, there are lots of rumors of cooperation and conversation, and there probably is some of that. On the other hand, when uh, uh, General Eisenkot, the uh, head of the IDF, gave a recent interview with Elaf, a Saudi publication based in London, he talked about Israel's, well, he did two things. First, he described the strategic situation in the Middle East, uh, especially regarding Iran. and. Also, what should be done about it in ways that really would have resonated in much of the Gulf among Saudis, Emiratis, and, and others. And, and so that sort of underscores the strategic basis for a new opening. On the other hand, uh, he kept talking about how Israel was uh, open to intelli sharing intelligence with moderate Arab states in this context. Well, that means that intelligence sharing. Uh, which is a pretty minimal form of cooperation when facing a, a, a major and a potentially existential threat like Iran is, uh, that means it's pretty limited. And you wouldn't credibly make such an offer if everyone in the elites who you're addressing knows they get this anyway. So that clearly shows how limited um, progress has been. As far as uh, the recent um, Jerusalem announcement goes, I think it greatly complicates any potential opening. Um, because it makes it much harder for the Arab countries to pressure the Palestinians on peace. I think it makes it much more difficult for them to uh, articulate politically what it is they're getting out of the Israelis and the Americans for this. Uh, and I think that it's necessary for them to do this. I, I think people misunderstand that this, is, this operates at three different levels simultaneously for countries like Saudi Arabia. First. It's a, yes, it's a domestic political issue, right? For sure, uh, they need to be able to demonstrate that you know they're making progress on the Palestinian front. Otherwise, it looks like a betrayal of a of a, of a key issue, and people won't like that. Secondly, and and when it comes to Jerusalem, not just a political issue, but also a religious issue as well. Um, so it's quite delicate. Uh, then there's a question of principles, where I think people are way too cynical. Uh, about Arab leaders. They talk about Arab leaders as if they didn't care at all about Palestinians or other Arabs or Muslims or anything. You'd think these were the only people in the world who have no values or no contradiction between their interests and their values, no tension between their interests and their values. Where 
I mean, it's clear, I think every American knows how difficult the tension between interests and values can be. Uh, and I think it's just absurd to, to talk as if um, Arab leaders were sort of uniquely value-free people. It's, it's wrong. There, is a, there are real commitments here to these ideas, and these people are Arabs, and they do feel the Palestinian uh, sort of plight as something of their own, and, and they would want to do something about it, and this is not insincere. The third point is that even if you took all of that off the table, you'd still be left with the basic strategic issue, which is that, look, the Palestinian issue is a major destabilizing issue. It feeds Iran and Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda and ISIS and every extremist in the region. It's a megaphone. They can just pick up and start shouting into it and gain credibility on nationalist or religious Muslim scores. Uh, on any number of demagogic issues without doing anything about it, just by shouting and outbidding everybody else. And as long as that's the case, and as long as it's this destabilizing, volatile element, uh, it's going to be very difficult for countries like Saudi Arabia to have uh, the kind of stability and political calm that they seek. So that, that, that um, you know, the opening with Israel and a strategic uh, initiative regarding Iran has to be you know, on all three counts, has to dovetail with progress on the Palestinian issue. Otherwise, the whole thing just doesn't make any sense. Uh, it's not only impractical, it's sort of inane and, uh, and, and sort of self-contradictory that you would, you know, charge after addressing uh, Iran as a destabilizing issue, but uh, ignore the persistence or maybe even exacerbate the persistence of another major destabilizing issue, it doesn't really add up. So I think that people need to understand uh, seriously that uh, even though there is a very strong mutual strategic interest in, in finding a new way forward and opening a dialogue and hopefully building towards a new strategic relationship, that that can't be done. Uh, at the expense of Palestinians or with, with no regard for the Palestinian issue. It can't be done practically, and it can't be done strategically, and it can't be done in a principled way. And therefore, you know what? It won't be done that way. I have a question regarding your last, um, the last point that you made. Yeah. Um, but don't you think that there would be a situation where the the relationship or everything that's going on on the ground with Iran between Saudi and Iran is so dire that if, that Saudi would have more to gain in terms of um, regional stabilization by having relationship with Israel. I mean, doesn't that actually feed yes, into stabilizing the region? Yes, but not at all costs. You see, that's the point. Uh, there, it, ha it yes, and I think that they're interested in looking at the possibility. But uh, I think that there are, uh, it's not hard to create scenarios where it becomes politically, diplomatically, and in terms of values, all three simultaneously impossible to do it in a, in a thoroughgoing and overt way. There may be covert contacts that are useful, and they, they possibly could even be intensified. But my point is, at a certain point, you can only go so far with covert relations, and the Eisenkot interview suggested it hasn't gone all that far uh, at this point, uh, at least not as far as many people imagine it may have. Otherwise, his interview made no sense, and I don't think there was any point in that. Um, so what I'm, what I'm getting at is that, uh, of course, you're just articulating the reason that this becomes an issue at all, right? You, you've given a very good explanation for why we're having this conversation in the first place, and, and that's true. Uh, on the other hand, it doesn't mean that uh, good relations between Saudi Arabia or the UAE or Kuwait or Qatar or what have you with Israel because of the strategic threat of Iran uh, can take place in a vacuum. It doesn't mean the Palestinian issue has gone away, either as a political one or as a strategic one and, and one involving security or as a matter of principles. It operates on all those levels simultaneously. And therefore, I think the... the uh, uh, the fact that we've gotten to this stage where we're seriously having this conversation, even in light of the American announcement on Jerusalem, which complicates things very great, whatever it ends up meaning, it's become extremely ambiguous at this point. Uh, I mean, State Department officials can't even tell you what country Jerusalem is in. Right? They've been asked that. David Satterfield, uh, 
assistant secretary of state for New Year's Affairs was asked that repeatedly the other day, and he was unable to say anything. Uh, you know, it's, it's very extraordinary. Uh, so it's not at all clear. But, you know, unless and until we have a, a reasonable clarification of what the United States has said, it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to be complicated. Uh, at the same time, I do think all the parties, because of this, are going to be looking for ways of moving forward, if they can. But uh, it will require movement on the Palestinian issue, or I don't think it's going to be possible. Without that, it, I really think, you know, that, that it's going to be stuck at a behind-the-scenes and covert level and very limited. And you, that is not the basis for a, a strategic partnership. It just isn't. Hussein, uh, Prince Turki al-Faisal uh, just uh, recently, I think it was yesterday, he issued a letter in a Saudi newspaper, Al Jazeera. Yeah. Um, and he was very, very critical of the U.S. decision on Jerusalem. He said, yeah. bloodshed and mayhem will definitely follow your opportunistic attempt to make electoral gain. Um, and he said that your action has emboldened the most extreme elements in the Israeli society because they take your action as a license to evict the Palestinians from their lands and subject, subject them to an apartheid state. Yeah. So is this Prince Turkey trying to please the Saudi public when he knows that the intelligence cooperation will continue with Israel? Or does this really say something, something more? No, I, say, I think it says a lot more. First of all, we don't know how much intelligence cooperation there is. I'm telling you that Eisenkot would not have offered intelligence sharing if intelligence sharing was thoroughgoing already. So obviously it's limited in my view. Uh, however, uh, that yeah, I mean that there are covert contacts and, and uh, conversations ongoing. Uh, I think that's very likely, and I think it's uh, it's only a good thing. Uh, it would not be uh, useful at all if there wasn't uh, you know this kind of groundwork being laid and at least the whole idea being explored. But I think Prince Turkey is onto something here, where you know one might um, disagree with elements of his language. The point is that he is elaborating on the uh, the Saudi response, which was to say that they uh, they used the word deplored in their response, in their official response, right? They said they deplored this action. That's a very strong word. Uh, and I don't think they wanted to have this argument with the United States. And by the way, a few hours later, the White House issued one of its patented garbled tweet-like statements on Yemen. Uh, calling on the Saudi uh, government to, to um, you know, stop uh, impeding the importation of food and medicine to Houthi-controlled ports in Yemen. And then later on, they issued a, a cleaned-up, like, grown-up version of it. Uh, but it really looked, in, in uh, both senses, like a, uh, like a, a very a hasty response to the Saudi response to the American statement on Jerusalem. And then uh, Secretary Tillerson the next day, that was Friday, uh, went ahead and uh, even criticized the Saudis more on Yemen, on Qatar, and Lebanon. And uh, it's something he's probably wanted to do since the summer, it seems, and uh, now suddenly found the opportunity to do it. So... In my view, uh, there's, a, um, there's a real speed bump here uh, between Washington and Riyadh. And I think you know, anyone who reads the diplomatic, it's not the tea leaves, just reads the diplomatic exchanges, uh, can see that none of this was chronologically coincidental. It didn't all just kind of you know, happen like out of the blue and, and it was all just a coincidence that it all happened in the same 24 hours. And no. That's not. I, I think there, you know, whatever the Saudis thought Trump was going to say on Jerusalem, I, I think it's clear they were somewhat taken aback. And when they say in their uh, official statement they're dismayed and that they deplore it, I take them seriously. And Trump then obviously took the opportunity to push back on Yemen, probably saying something Dave uh, White has been wanting to say for a while about um, shipments of food and medicine. And then Tillerson saw the opportunity to come back and add you know, Lebanon and Qatar to the mix and vent his frustrations. None of this is really very helpful. And I think what it gets at is that there are, uh, there, the, not only are there underlying differences in the U.S.-Saudi relationship on both sides, but that um, this is not a kabuki show, right? This is not 
uh, Saudi Arabia pretending to be annoyed with the United States and the United States pretending to be outraged that Saudi Arabia is annoyed. I think it's all entirely genuine uh, or largely genuine. Uh, and I think that Prince Turkey's um, expression of outrage is, is an elaboration of that on the Saudi side in the same way that even though he's not an official, but in, a, in an analogous way that Secretary Tillerson's uh, riff uh, on uh, not just Yemen, but Qatar and Lebanon as well, uh, was an elaboration of frustrations in the uh, U.S. government as well. Um, so all the, you know, I mean, th there's been a honeymoon for a while, right? And now the, the young couple, well, they've been together for a long time, but with this administration, it's new. So now we're hearing about socks on the bathroom floor and, you know, lipstick on the sheets, and I don't know, whatever, you know, little things or th things that have been avoided uh, between the uh, the honeymooners uh, are, are kind of coming out. Uh, and I think we need to take that seriously because it it is a pretty good gauge of how, uh, at least uh, temporarily, they manage to annoy, annoy each other pretty seriously over this. And that, I think that shows what's at stake, honestly. So I'm just wondering how could these tensions um, affect the strategic um, struggle that's going on between the U.S. and Russia? More and more people are talking about the um, uh, resurgence of um, Cold War methods. And yeah. do you think but that Saudi Arabia could eventually start aligning with Russia? Or no. would it just stay no. as you just portrayed it as just a... Tensions yeah. and no, 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 no. Neither, neither Israel nor Saudi Arabia are going to be abandoning the United States for Russia. Okay, Russia has its clients in the Middle East, Syria, Iran, most notably. It's on that side, right? I mean, I think I think that if you had to to characterize what it is that holds the anti-Iranian alliance in the Middle East together. And no, it's not even an alliance, the anti-Iranian camp, so that, that then you can bring the Israelis into it. Um, these are not part of any alliance, but they are part of, of, a, of a very loose camp uh, that's opposed to the expansion of Iranian influence on Arab states and sometimes Turkey and sometimes not, depending on the, in the day of the week and whatnot. But generally speaking, yes. Um, you know, it would be to, to essentially describe them probably as the pro-American camp, essentially, right? I mean, I think I think it's fair to say there's a there's a, uh, a, a in effect a pro-American wing of the Middle East and in effect a pro-Iranian wing, and because of the Syrian war and the abdication, the grotesque abdication of the American role in Syria, first by the Obama administration and now just as much by the Trump administration. Um, Russia has had a free hand in Syria, which is a decisive and epical landscape-shaping conflict, right? And Russia is in the driver's seat now. Because of that, Russia has not only resurged in the Middle East, but it's also become the, uh, the guarantor and sort of, sort of international godfather of the pro-Iranian alliance. And over time, it could emerge as a pro-Russian alliance rather than a pro-Iranian one. However, at the moment, there are too many... Uh, distinctions between uh, Iranian and Russian views probably make that a meaningful statement. But eventually you can imagine that happening. So at that point you'd be back again to a Cold War scenario with a, a pro-American and a pro-Russian camp. At least there's, I think, a pro-American and, and a pro-Iranian one. Under such circumstances, the two countries who will not consider leaving the pro-American camp and therefore joining the, the the pro-Iranian uh, pro camp are Israel and Saudi Arabia. I think they absolutely top the list, so there's no chance of that. On the other hand, both Israel and Saudi Arabia and others in the region, like Turkey and uh, the UAE and other, other powers, have gotten much closer to Russia in the past couple of years. Russia recognized, Israel, uh, recognized West Jerusalem as Israel's capital in, in April, uh, showing two things. Number one, that this business of discussing Jerusalem is not unique to the United States. And number two, that it can be done without raising a brouhaha uh, because the Russian state was quite balanced and you know, carefully distinguished between East and West Jerusalem and 
failed to make all the mistakes that the Trump statement yeah, did. Yeah, and it was interesting because Israel, like, Israeli media reported it that Jerusalem, like, Russia was acknowledging Jerusalem to be the capital of Israel, while Western media and and media in the Arab world reported it as West Jerusalem. So they really, well, they kind of won on two fronts in a way, because... Yeah, except that if you read the statement, it's very clear of course. that they're talking about West Jerusalem. And more, that they, they say that East Jerusalem should be the capital of Palestine, and they reiterated their commitment to a two-state solution, and they did all these things. And even the United States wouldn't have had to go that far as to, as to kind of suggest that East Jerusalem should be uh, entirely Palestinian or largely Palestinian. You have to do that. All they had to do was clarify that, you know, in order to contain the worst of the damage, uh, would have been to clarify that what the United States was recognizing was West Jerusalem as Israel's capital. And then that would have been unfortunate, largely because Jerusalem, Tut Court, not East Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem is a final status issue. And that's reflected, that's a, it's a, in effect a treaty obligation by both the United States and Israel towards the Palestinians. So it's, it's an incredible uh, thing to upend. I mean, it really is to take the entire Oslo framework and flush it down the toilet. Honestly, it is to do that. And I think people haven't understood that enough. But, but was, it really does do that. Was Trump, but, that. was Trump that far away from doing that by adding the line that this is not to say anything about the final status uh, borders of Jerusalem? I mean, if no. he added the word, if he added the word West Jerusalem or he said anything about East Jerusalem, would we be having an entirely different conversation? Yes. Yes. Uh, now, I, I can't assure you that if he'd added a word, it would, would have been. But if, he, if, if you had let me redraft that statement in an intelligent way, we would not be having this conversation. That's correct. If he had made it clear, if he'd made three things clear, really clear, Okay, not this, with that stupid sentence about borders and sovereignty, which is really vague, you know. Uh, but if he'd made if he if he'd made it very clear, so that his officials could tell you what city Jerusalem is in, okay, or that his officials could tell you another question Satterfield was asked. Poor David Satterfield doesn't deserve this. He was asked. What city was Trump in when he visited the Western Wall? Well, not what city? Excuse me. What country was he in? And he couldn't answer. Because the U.S. policy doesn't have a policy on that. I mean, it's it's just very desperate. So if 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 three things had been clear in Trump's statement, uh, number one, that the U.S. was recognizing West Jerusalem as Israel's capital. Number two, that uh, none of this prejudices or judges anything or has any implications about East Jerusalem whatsoever. Uh, and number three, that the future of Jerusalem Tut Court remains a final status issue with borders and sovereignty to be destroyed. That's where that sentence should have been. Uh, then we would not be having this conversation, or we'd be having a very different conversation. We'd be having a conversation about how to build on this concession to Israel and how, what we were going to do for the other side to create a virtuous circle. And blah, blah, blah. We wouldn't be talking about how much harm has been caused. We wouldn't be talking about the incredible disruption to the uh, effort to build a relationship between Israel and the Arab world or to bring the Arab countries into the peace problem. Yes, and we wouldn't be fretting about uh, you know how much harm has been caused because the harm would be, by definition, I think, quite manageable. Um, but to play devil's advocate, I'm sorry to take this position. You've mentioned oh, why not? <laughs> it's fun. Uh, you mentioned that basically by doing this recognition as Trump did it, he's abdicating the Oslo process and um, instead of leaving Jerusalem to be discussed in a final in a final agreement. But one of the points that um, Trump also made during his speech was that he's recognizing the situation on the ground. Uh, Jerusalem I love this is, argument. Oh, yeah. I mean, I love fact, this though, Jerusalem is Israel's capital. I mean, that's right. where the government, okay. the buildings right. are, so, and the institutions. And for all Israelis, that is the capital. Sure. So okay. wouldn't you can, so, can you just say the same thing about the Oslo process? I mean, let's face the fact. The Oslo framework okay. is not relevant anymore. Sure. Okay. So, well, fine. In which case, but I mean, it is then remarkable uh, that the country that guaranteed the Oslo process is the first one to trash it 
and that Israel embraces that, and that the one that was always the least enthusiastic about the Oslo framework, and the one that got the least out of it, and the one that felt most ambivalent about it, the Palestinians, are the ones trying to hold on to it, okay? Because it is legitimate, because it is lawful, because it is based on, it's, this is not, see, one thing about this Oslo framework, <coughs> it's not something cooked up somewhere and written on the back of a menu, right? This reflects treaty obligations. This has legal status and standing. This is not something somebody made up in, you know, in a hotel lobby somewhere. Oh, it is, but I mean, the point is it was then um, ratified and solemnized uh, in a major way. And so when one party rips that up and throws it aside, it has major, major implications. Now, as for just recognizing reality, right, so that I mean, in terms of the location of Israel's government and all of that, that would have been accomplished by limiting the recognition to West Jerusalem, right? That could have been done, uh, but it wasn't. Uh, and I think it would well, have been very easy. Well, if I'm not mistaken, that the Department of Justice sits in East Jerusalem on Tel Aviv, so it's not well, necessarily so on West Jerusalem. But you don't have to do that, okay? So you, 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 there's no need to recognize that. You could easily do the Russian thing and recognize, in theory, that Israel's capital in West Jerusalem, and that most Israelis would have celebrated, and, uh, you know, Arabs could have lived with it, I think, except maybe Palestinians would be very annoyed, but the other Arabs could have lived with it. Now, let's put it this way. If we're about accepting realities, how about this as a core reality, that for most of Israel's contemporary, not contemporary, most of Israel's history, in other words, since 1967, right, all but 19 years of the existence of the state of Israel, the state of Israel has in fact included not just East Jerusalem and West Jerusalem, but also the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, okay, and that all of that should be considered part of Israel, and that therefore the demand on Israel should not be two states or anything like that, but rather to grant millions of Palestinians their citizenship rights in what amounts to the country in which most of them were born and all of them live, and they don't have any access to any other country, and they're not likely to get access to any other country, and that therefore, in fact, the reality is Israel is not a Jewish country at all, because it doesn't have a Jewish majority in the territory that has constituted its actual acreage and sovereign control area since 1967, uh, uh, since 1967, the majority of its history, and more than that, that therefore also Israel in no way could be considered a democracy. And that, so you can't call it a Jewish state, you can't call it a democracy, you can't call it any of those things. Well, you know what, if we're in the, in, on the, in the business of recognizing realities, and forgetting about law and diplomacy and outcomes and being reasonable, then I think there, there would be no basis at stopping with uh, Jerusalem is Israel's capital. Uh, because if Jerusalem is part of Israel, so is all of the West Bank, and so, in fact, is the Gaza Strip, and all of those people should be Israelis. And uh, then we've got a real problem with Zionism, because if Zionism is about a Jewish and a democratic state, then Israel is neither a Jewish nor a democratic state, and that's not something for the future, that's now. So I would be very wary about this argument about we're just accepting reality when we want to accept those realities that are politically convenient or, or nice or reasonable, and then the other realities that are very, very uncomfortable, we don't want to go there. Well, there is still, though, a differentiation between and the, at least for Israel, between East Jerusalem and the West Bank and Gaza. I mean, Israel acknowledged the fact that it wants East Jerusalem as part of Israel and annexed it. Um, so it didn't give um, citizenship to East Jerusalemites, it gave resident status. But, I mean, it's not exactly... Right. So the, what you're describing is a situation in which Israel is picking and choosing what parts of the occupied territory it claims to be part of Israel or not at any given moment and maintains a fiction where there is a mobile Israeli state that exists pretty much wherever a settler happens to be living and everywhere else there's an and Jerusalem and everywhere else there's an undifferentiated occupation that's to be resolved at some future date except for the fact that it's all actually under Israeli control and de facto sovereignty and has been since 1967. So my point is this. <clears throat> Trump says he's not interested in the rest of the world's 
legal and political and diplomatic opinion, even though it's linked to peace and linked to law and linked to justice and linked to legitimacy and UN Security Council, doesn't matter because there's a core reality about Israeli control in Jerusalem, including in, in East Jerusalem, and he's right about that. And I'm right that the same logic absolutely applies to the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, at least, and probably the Golan Heights as well. And all of that, therefore, if we're in the business of recognizing reality, it, it doesn't do to say, well, but Israel only claims this part and not the other part. It doesn't matter what Israel claims. Israel exercises de facto sovereignty and has since 1967 over all those territories. So if we want to be in the business of recognizing reality and stopping kidding ourselves, then we stop you know, the, the international kidding about Jerusalem, but we also have to stop the Israeli kidding about Gaza and the West Bank, right? I mean, I, otherwise we're going to kid sometimes but not kid other times. Well, here's the thing. This is my point, and this is what I'm trying to get at. Not that any of this is a good idea. It's not. But that when you want to say, you know what, we're just not kidding anymore. We're just looking at the core realities. The cost of that can be very huge, okay? And that these legal and diplomatic and political niceties that are universally acknowledged and have been for many decades exist for a reason. Right? The world did not adopt these positions because the world is trying to be nasty to Israel or unfair to Jews or unreasonable about Jerusalem or the holy places or the Western Wall or anything. That is not what the world was thinking. The world was thinking about solving the problem in a way that is viable and sustainable and reasonable. And at this point, if we are recklessly going to say, we're not interested in that, we're interested in the, in the lived realities, right? Then there's no argument for stopping with Israel's control of Jerusalem and not extending it to Israel's control of the rest of the territory. Well, whatever the Israelis say they want or don't want, that that's not the reality. The reality is what do they have, what do they maintain, and what do they do? Uh, and there, I think there's no basis for, um, you know, accepting their self-delusions any more than anybody else's self-delusions, unless we want to, you know, take a deep breath, regain our sense of equilibrium, and remember there's a reason why law and diplomacy and politics don't always track exactly with the situation on the ground at any given moment because it will result in bad outcomes. And that's my point. I mean, it's sort of a modest proposal I was making. I, I don't think it would be a good idea at all. But I'm trying to uh, sort of explain to you, A, the consequences of uh, simply dispensing with, um, with, with, with law and legitimacy and diplomacy and outcomes in favor of a so-called recognition of reality, and B, uh, how arbitrary uh, that that is, uh, you know, by definition, I, I'm going to recognize this reality, but not the other reality. Hussein, thank you. Um, I just want to take this back to the regional uh, framework uh, as we wrap up. Um, two developments since the Jerusalem announcement that I just want to briefly mention. One is the report of a, a delegation from Bahrain, which was sent by, uh, by the king. Um, yep. It's just a report, but this is happening after the announcement on Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, uh, the Jordanian parliament is set to have a committee to review their peace treaty with Israel. So one is uh, a mm -hmm. positive uh, for Israel in the, regional, uh, uh, in, in the regional framework, the other a negative. The Israeli yeah. government, or at least Netanyahu, it seems that he... he he thinks that he can kind of bypass the Palestinian issue and make progress um, on the regional uh, on the regional level. Do you think he honestly believes that? Do you think that's possible? Has it hit kind of a, has he hit the wall when it comes to improving relations? Because uh, this is the most right wing government in Israel's history, and yeah. regional relations with uh, with the pragmatic Sunni states have seemingly improved but have, have we kind of reached a, a stop do you think well okay uh that was a, a fairly dense question i know i'm sorry i think netanyahu does probably think that i i think he does think that he can make a lot more progress uh because of um gulf arab anxieties about iran and uh i think that i don't know anything about this 
delegation from Bahrain. I don't know if it's true. I don't know who they are. I don't know what the point is. I do know Bahrain has been taking, and I wrote an article about this a couple of months ago, about how Bahrain has been taking the lead and, uh, and, and uh, on this issue and, and why, that's, why that is and why it's significant. And I wouldn't be surprised if it, if it continued to some extent. But I, I think the answer to your overall question is, is um, that it's going to be very, very hard to take uh, this uh, project of building a new dialogue and a new relationship much further unless we can uh, get back on track. And getting back on track would mean one of several things. It would mean either uh, you know, a, a clarification from Washington about what exactly the United States is, has done and, and why and what the implications of the, all this are uh, that brings us a lot closer to what I was um, expressing about the distinction between West and East Jerusalem and uh, the point that American diplomats can actually say something coherent about what the American position on uh, Jerusalem and especially East Jerusalem is. And uh, you know, as long as we're in this situation, it's going to be very, very hard to do that. Uh, in addition, I think uh, it's going to be really important to find a diplomatic framework uh, in which uh, something significant can be accomplished uh, on the Palestinian issue, on Palestine, with regard to Palestinian rights, with regard to bringing forward uh, the, the overall situation where it's going to be very hard uh, to accomplish this. I think everybody has an interest in doing it, or really both sides do. Uh, and I think there's, as I, you know, I think I explained in some detail why uh, both Israel and the Arab countries are, are kind of interested in this sort of thing. And, and I mean here the Gulf countries. Less, Jordan is, is, is less... Um, Jordan and Egypt have their own dynamics uh, with Israel and, and their own... They're a very important part of the mix, but they don't... They're, they're not motivated by exactly the same things. So, so they, are, they are a whole other story here. Uh, but I think when it comes to the Gulf countries... Um, and the Israelis, they do have a common interest based on Iran in, in looking for a dialogue. So they'll be looking for ways to go forward, but, you know, there's going to have to be a, uh, a real uh, diplomatic and political framework that allows them to do that. And I think if there are any Israelis out there who think that they can have this new relationship without any serious uh, movement on the Palestinian issue, I think they're going to find that's just not the case. So I'm wondering what can Saudi do and what can the region do in order to push forward any kind of progress between Israel and the Palestinians? I mean, is there a way for Saudi to, be, to become more influential in this and to be yeah. a, a positive force? Of course. Uh, first of all, there are uh, look. There are these press reports that suggest that uh, the Saudi Crown Prince was presenting a very dreadful American plan, which I believe doesn't yet really exist. So I don't. I, don't, I mean, I think there there are ideas floating around out there, but uh, if there's a, a proposal that's going to be released sometime in the middle of next year, obviously it's not ready, uh, and I don't think it is. Uh, and that uh, the Palestinians were being browbeaten to accept it by the Saudis. Uh, the, the, what this gets wrong, obviously, and forget about the, the, the details of what may or may not have been said, because there's no way of knowing this, but one thing we do, you know, is clear uh, is that Saudi Arabia is not in a position to force Palestinians to agree on anything. I mean, Saudi Arabia doesn't have a coercive influence with Palestinians. It doesn't have uh, any basis for forcing them to do anything they don't want to. Now, <coughs> I think what, what, Saudi, what Saudi Arabia and the others could do is, is provide inducements, right? In other words, it, this, all that rhetoric just sort of presumes they have these big, huge, scary sticks to wave at Palestinians, like withdrawing all the billions that they give them or something, which is just a fantasy, right? I mean, they don't really fund them that much. Uh, it's not the kind of threat people maybe imagine. Uh, but I think, you know, when we get into uh, the potential for a healthier dynamic, for sure they can be very helpful 
in terms of uh, what they fund themselves directly, what they get their allies to fund, what they endorse, and uh, in terms of a regional and broader Arab political cover for Palestinians. All of that they can provide, right? They can be very, very helpful uh, under the right circumstances. But right now, there's no framework for bringing any of that to bear. Right. Uh, I think they would like to find one. Uh, it's, it, it seems to me obvious that that's in their interests. Uh, but I also think that it's, you know, it's not something that can just be willed into existence. And I, 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 I agree with the sort of suggestion that it's hard to imagine this Israeli government uh, being, especially when they go around talking as if this were all done at a fait accompli and a done deal and whatnot, uh, that is to say a new relationship with uh, Arab countries, that they would be willing to take any serious steps on, on towards the Palestinians or, or be, be willing to make any real concessions. And I, I think that's going to be necessary. And so, uh, uh, you know, I, I wonder how far this can go. And I do think both sides are going to continue, and the Americans are all going to be looking for ways to make it work. Uh, for very, because they all have a real interest, the potential for a three-way convergence between Israel, Arab states, and the United States to block any further Iranian expansion in the region and hopefully even begin to roll it back is very significant. And it would be a, a real boon to everybody. And I have argued that potentially Palestinians could be real beneficiaries of that. Uh, and I still think it's possible. But I think that the uh, the politics of it have to be handled intelligently. And uh, Mr. Trump's announcement, which I believe was entirely driven by domestic political concerns, particularly involving shoring up the support from his evangelical Christian base in light of the, um, let's say, creeping threat of the Mueller investigation and other matters, um, uh, is what dictated doing this uh, ill-advised thing in this ill-advised way at this inexplicable time. In terms of foreign policy, international relations, and achieving broader American and even his own administration's foreign policy goals, it doesn't make any sense. But, I mean, if you ask what's changed since six months ago when he signed the waiver on the embassy and that was it, and nobody said much of anything, and it wasn't even a big deal. And what's changed since then? I think that's what's changed. And I think it's, uh, it clearly was a, a decisive motivating thing. And so now we need to try to find uh, a, uh, a set of diplomatic and political or, or a, you know, foreign policy solutions to what is a, uh, a considerable mess that has been created for domestic political purposes. In other words, I believe the calculations driving this were entirely unrelated or almost entirely unrelated to the dynamics that it will primarily impact internationally. And that's why it's a little bit tricky. But what it means also is that Mr. Trump has probably ticked the Jerusalem box as far as he's concerned. And that uh, and, unless and until he gets another term, we won't be hearing anything else about Jerusalem under any circumstances. And what that, uh, you know, in, in terms of a big deal, and what that means is that when the dust settles, we might well get additional statements, clarifications, uh, or other processes that, um, that significantly uh, clarify in a good way the uh, details of the uh, new American policy uh, or other initiatives that uh, allow us to move forward. And I think I think other parties are going to be looking, for, including the Palestinians, are going to be looking for opportunities to do that. But, you know, there's a good deal of repair work that needs to be done because this was a... Um, in terms of international relations, uh, truly a fiasco. And I, I've read many uh, serious uh, analyses by people I respect that downplay it and, and want to say it's not that big a deal, et cetera, and I think they're wrong. Uh, with all due respect, I think enormous harm has been done. I certainly don't think it is irreparable, and I don't think by any means that it can't be fixed, and I don't think everything is done, and I don't think the you know, the world's over or the roof has fallen in. But I do think as it stands, it won't do. 
So going back um, to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and Saudi involvement, why has that not happened more intensely until now? I mean, why does it, if Saudi claims to be so um, concerned with the Palestinian plight, why does it not, why is it not more involved in, in funding the PA and uh, institutionalization? And uh, I mean, in a way, it's kind of, it's, it's kind of distanced. I mean, it's it's sitting in Riyadh and claiming, oh, this is what needs to happen. And also, I mean, offering the Arab Peace Initiative was a, a big step for in terms of the regional uh, discourse. But still, there was it was a, an offer put on the table, but it wasn't accompanied with anything more concrete. Right. So, okay. It's a, I mean, it's a fairly good question. I think that you know, this, the Saudi engagement has been up and down and back and forth. It it, it has ebbed and flowed historically, and uh, in terms of funding, uh, again, I think that has ebbed and flowed historically. Uh, but I think I think that um, the uh, like a lot of other donors, um, they were happier giving money. Uh, to the PA Treasury when uh, when Salam Fayyad was Prime Minister and uh, and the uh, Minister of the Economy or the Minister who was in charge of, of the, the PA's finances. Um, there was a sense then of order of cleanliness, of uh, accountability and transparency that uh, wasn't there before and hasn't been there after. And that's an issue. Uh, also, uh, I think that they... Uh, you know, there's a real question about how much funding uh, would have advanced peace. It's, it would help Palestinians, especially certain Palestinians, and sometimes it's been forthcoming and sometimes it hasn't been. Uh, and the, the but uh, even the there's, you know, you ha have to go to the donor states who've been the main underwriters of the PA, which don't really include Saudi Arabia, although sometimes it has, but, but say some of the European states and others, in the United States too, by the way, uh, and ask them uh, how much their support for the PA has enhanced um, the peace process and how, how much closer has it gotten us to resolution. So the answer is nothing. It really hasn't. So I think it's, it would be very difficult to... Um, place much of the blame for the continuation of the conflict or the lack of a resolution uh, at the feet of um, relatively marginal regional players, uh, like to, marginal to the peace process, uh, like Saudi Arabia, or those who've been helpful, or uh, largely helpful, like Jordan. I think it's the, the, the three countries that are going to have to live with the failure, the three entities that really bear, you know, over 95%. Uh, if not more, of the responsibility for the successes and failures in the peace process are the two parties, Israel and the Palestinians, and I think it's clear who has the preponderance of influence there, although both sides have uh, real responsibilities and uh, nobody is a victim who needs their rights given to them. Everybody has to, you know, uh, help themselves clearly, and, and what they do and don't do is very important and all of that, I agree. Uh, and the United States, which has been the guarantor and, and the main broker here. And uh, so I think really uh, everybody else has been secondary at best. And there is a, a country which has been particularly unhelpful, and that's Iran. Uh, and its surrogates, Hezbollah and the Syrian government and others, uh, as well as Hamas, uh, have been uh, very, very unhelpful. Um, in recent years. And uh, I just think uh, everybody else has been varying degrees of ineffective. Hussein, uh, this is the last question, I promise. Uh, thank you again. Uh, sure. Can you give us your recent take on events in Saudi Arabia? Uh, apparently women will be allowed to drive in 2018. Yes. Western musicians will be... Uh, holding concerts, and some royal family members have been jailed for corruption. What's really going on? In the Ritz-Carlton. In the Ritz-Carlton, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I mean, those you've just put a huge bunch of things together. Um, I can only answer very very generally. I, you need to call me back and have me you know, talk for at least a similar amount of time. About, Sounds good. 
what's been going on in Saudi Arabia. I just got back from Saudi Arabia, a fascinating trip. Um, but let me say what's happening in Saudi Arabia is the reconstruction of society, okay, from the top down, all right? It's, it's a, uh, you could call it revolutionary, you could call it an autogolpe, which is a Spanish word. We don't have the equivalent in English. It means self-coup. It's when the leadership at the very top of a country re reorganizes everything underneath them. Uh, and I think that's there's an element of autogolpe about all of this. Uh, when it first started happening, that is, say, at least right after the the mass arrests on corruption charges of mostly non-royals, but some very prominent royals as well, uh, the people who ended up, the 200-and-something people who ended up at the Ritz, uh, reportedly 95% of them have done plea bargains or the equivalent um, to return X amount of stolen money and uh, in, re in return for clemency. Um, so they're apparently almost all of them be coming out. Uh, very soon some of them have already. Um, but the point is that uh, I think the message uh, of the anti-corruption uh, efforts, uh, the, the, the uh, narrow message was this old way of doing business that was highly corrupt, that involved the pilfering of 10 or 20 percent of the public treasury every year by these senior people, uh, and where everything was done on the basis of patronage and kickbacks and just outright thievery, that's over. And people are going to go to jail over this if they keep it up and uh, you know maybe a few weeks in the Ritz Carlton and having to give up some of their money would, 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 would make that point and if not I think people really will go to prison in the end and and so that's the narrow point the broader point is that uh, the uh, the country is changing it's changing from the top down but it's ch it's very funny because it's changing in a broadly in a progressive way uh, so progressive change from the top down is not at all unheard of in human history, but we're, we're used to thinking about progressive change and, uh, uh, and the dispersal of power. Or no, let, me, let me rephrase it. We're used to thinking about progressive change and the concentration of power as, two diff as, as antithetical um, movements in a society. And, in fact, they can go together, uh, and this is an example of at least trying to have that happen in Saudi Arabia. So it's a little bit of a, of a jarring thing from our contemporary uh, perspective if we don't have a strong historical sense, but um, it wouldn't be anything like the first time if it, if it were successful. I think it's, it's quite a high-wire act, uh, and if people want to read... Um, the details of what I think, I wrote a piece for The Atlantic about this, you know, within a couple days of the mass arrests. And uh, what I basically said is that the, uh, the deputy crown, uh, no, the, deputy, the, the, the new crown prince and putative future king um, is essentially has founded the, the fourth Saudi kingdom. And this is a new regime. Uh, I use that word. Uh, and I think that's right. Uh, and he wants to um, be much more open, much more uh, accessible, much more engaged, much more. He talks about going back to moderate Islam. He says our country is not normal. Uh, he says all the right things. Uh, and one final thing. I don't think there's any doubt whatsoever. Everything I know and everything I saw and everyone I talked to, this guy is enormously popular with the youth, with the middle class, with everyone who feels disgruntled uh, that, that the society is sclerotic, that it hasn't listened to them, that they've lacked opportunities, that they need to open up to women, to the outside world, to, to economic dynamism, all that stuff. He's very, very popular right now with those people, with the elites and the more entrenched people and the older people and maybe the more religious people, not so much. But that's not the point. The point is you've got, you've got a, uh, there's a real populist spirit behind this, which is uh, maybe would be very surprising to outside observers, but it's, it's really real. And even some of his biggest critics uh, not only say that, they freely admit it, and all of them uh, admit it if you press them. Uh, <coughs> so, you know, the point is that uh, this is a very unusual way of doing a very unusual thing, and it's highly ambitious, and it's very... Uh, debatable, the extent to which it's going to work or not. And uh, my only point is everybody who's 
sincere and reasonable about a better future for the Middle East and the Arab world uh, and uh, that part of the world uh, really needs to be hoping he succeeds because well, if he fails, it will be very, very bad. And uh, the, the goals that he's pursuing are really very good goals. The, the, the way in which it's being done um, is full of potential pitfalls, as I outlined in many of my articles. But um, I do think most of the goals are really not only uh, good, they're wildly overdue. Well, we just have to hope that he doesn't get assassinating for, assassinated for <laughs> pissing somebody off too much. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would begin when I say I hope he succeeds. I think it goes without saying that the first element of that is not to get assassinated. Yeah. Um, thank you so much, Hussein. This was really intriguing. I really enjoyed this call. Anytime. Thank you very much. Thank you. We'll speak soon. Yes. Okay, thank you. All right. I'll come back anytime. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in, and thank you, Noah, for being such a great co-host. Well, thank you, Eli. Bye.